This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast. One step forward, two steps back. That's the cadence of the January 6th committee's investigation. For every big win, for every fucking smoking gun and tantalizing possibility that the truth is at hand, there's the political reality that all of this may very well vanish next year. Regardless, there have been victories. And last Thursday's arrest of Oath Keeper founder Stuart Rhodes is quite possibly the biggest win yet. This is CNN Breaking News. And we begin with the breaking news. The leader of the extremist Oath Keepers appearing in court to face the most serious charges yet in the insurrection investigation. Federal prosecutors now indicting militia leaders for trying to overthrow the U.S. government. These are new charges against 10 rioters and militia leaders for their direct roles in the January 6th insurrection. Now, this is huge news in the probe because one, it's the first sedition charge. Two, it's a key charge going up the line to the plotters of this insurrection for the first time. And three, it shows an open probe escalating, not winding down, which is possibly bad news for other insurrectionists and coup plotters yet to be potentially charged. Rhodes, the leader and founder of the far-right Oath Keepers militia, was arrested on Thursday and charged along with 10 others with seditious conspiracy over what prosecutors said was their wide-ranging plot to storm the Capitol on January 6th last year and disrupt the certification of Joseph R. Biden Jr.'s electoral victory. Well, the feds say in this brand new serious indictment, that Oath Keepers militia founder, Stuart Rhodes, led a literal, criminal, seditious conspiracy. He needs to know from you that you are with him, that he does not do it now. While he is commander in chief, we're going to have to do it ourselves later in a much more desperate, much more bloody war. Let's get it on now while he is still the commander in chief. This is a major development for those seeking accountability and justice for the January 6th plotters with Rhodes and other Oath Keepers being the first to be charged with sedition among the more than 700 people accused so far of taking part in the assault. They allege and indict him for, quote, trying to oppose the lawful transfer of presidential power by force through the violent January 6th attack and state that that attack was an illegal hindering of the laws governing the transfer of power. In the language of federal law, violently opposing that transfer of power to President-elect Biden is sedition. The Justice Department has brought a variety of charges in connection with the Capitol attack. It has prosecuted about 275 people for obstructing Congress's duty to certify the 2020 presidential vote count, for example. But it had not previously brought a sedition charge with the legal weight and political overtones it carries about an election in a highly polarized country. This is really a landmark charge by the Justice Department. We've seen up to this point 700 plus charges. This is the first time we've seen the Justice Department charge sedition or seditious conspiracy. I think those these charges based on the complaints and the indictments that I've seen are well founded here. If anything, they're overdue and focusing again on the cons- conspiracy piece. We now know that according to the Justice Department, a domestic extremist group, an organized 
domestic extremist group was behind a significant part of this attack on the Capitol. That's an incredibly important statement by the Justice Department. The charge of seditious conspiracy, which can be difficult to prove, requires prosecutors to show that at least two people agreed to use force to overthrow government authority or delay the execution of a U.S. law. Rhodes faces 20 years in prison for the charge. That's why sedition against the U.S. is so serious and so rarely charged. Many murders, another very serious felony, are charged every year. But we checked and best we can tell, the United States has not charged someone with sedition for over a decade. It was against a Michigan militia member last time in 2010. Prosecutors said that beginning only days after the 2020 election, Stuart Rhodes oversaw a seditious plot to oppose the lawful transfer of presidential power by force. Some members of the Oath Keepers, under his command, broke into the Capitol in a military-style assault on January 6th and went in search of Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the indictment said. Others, it said, were stationed in a hotel in Alexandria, Virginia, as an armed quick reaction force ready to rush into Washington if needed. Department, correct me if I'm wrong, saying this, some of the Oath Keepers have already begun cooperating with some of the investigators. Yeah, exactly right, Allison. Let this put to rest the myth-making and the revisionist history and the outright denialism around January 6th. I mean, it's laid out there in black and white by the Justice Department with, by the way, quite strong proof to back it up laid out in the indictment, including quoted electronic communications. This indictment, when you read it, it is clear this was an organized effort. This was an effort that was organized not on the spot, but for days and weeks in advance. There were elements of weaponry, of armaments, of tactical movements. And again, the group that was putting this all together, or one of the groups that was putting this all together, was the Oath Keepers. We know who they are. That is a domestic extremist group. These are facts. The Justice Department lays them out very clearly in the indictment, and that's why this is such a high-impact charge. The new indictment paints a terrifying portrait of Rhodes' activities starting only days after the 2020 election. Just two days after November 3rd, Rhodes told several members of his group to refuse to accept a Biden victory. We aren't getting through this without a civil war, he wrote on an encrypted chat app signal. Too late for that, Prepare your mind, body, and spirit. He also, according to this new evidence, was studying a Serbian coup plot where citizens did overrun the parliament building. They ousted the president. So that's some of the footage you're seeing of what inspired, allegedly, these people on January 6th. Reading again from this indictment, citing the evidence, quote, We must now do what the people of Serbia did when Milosevic stole their election, refused to accept it, march and mass the nation's capital. Rhodes published the plan of action under the headline, What We the People Must Do. This was on the Oath Keepers website. One month later, after plotting with subordinates in several states, Rhodes told members of his group on the Signal app that they should use overwhelming force and violence to stop Biden from taking office. It will be a bloody and desperate fight, he wrote. We are going to have a fight. That can't be avoided. And also, if you look at what they had, I mean, these are just some of the weaponry and, tact and tactics that were discussed uh, on these group chats. They brought shotguns and scopes, magazines, sights, optics, AR platforms, rifles, firearms, night vision devices, a boat that could handle a Potomac 
crossing. They said, we could have our team with the heavy weapons standing by, quickly load them and ferry them across the river. This was not a casual conspiracy. This was, it sounds like an active military plan. It's revealed in the court documents were just chilling. Two days after the election, Rhodes allegedly writing to his followers, we aren't getting through this without a civil war. And the prosecutors say that images like these show the Oath Keepers unloading weapons in a Virginia hotel just ahead of January 6th. There's also the reality that had things gone differently, we would have witnessed a horrific slaughter. According to the indictment, the Oath Keepers attempted to make a coordinated move on the Senate chamber and tried to push their way through a line of police officers who forcibly repelled their advance and seemingly stopped them from executing their mission. The Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and the 3% militias had multiple meetings about this. Uh, they started and really started getting people ready in late October, early November, sending them to training schools, having them, you know, have 1,500, you know, 150 uh, rounds of combat load ammunition on their weapons, getting their body armor together. What you saw on January 6th was the command cell of the Oath Keepers. There were many, many, many hundreds more Oath Keepers there. It's a big organization. It's just that this was Stuart Rhodes' teams that he was bringing into the building. And if you recall that very night, we, we were on this very program, I said, it's quite possible that these people may have had capture and kill teams that were organized to go in there, murder cells is another way that we put them, and that they would be very well organized. This entire sedition, uh, was, you know, the insurrection in itself was well organized because not only did they plan it, they also sent orders out to everyone and thousands of people came dressed like them. Other rioters managed to get inside the Senate floor and gallery, but the Oath Keepers, who prosecutors say had stockpiled firearms at a nearby hotel in Virginia for a quick reaction force, were prevented by police from breaking through and the new indictments dramatically raises the stakes of the plot to prevent Joe Biden from becoming president. Selecting this charge is really DOJ framing the issues around January 6th. And Joy, as you noted, this indictment is careful to set forth that they're looking not just at that day itself, but at what preceded it and what followed it. So they're looking at a conspiracy and ongoing course of conduct. And unlike prior indictments, this is not an indictment that alleges obstruction of Congress. This is not an indictment that talks about being uh, on the Capitol grounds without permission. This sets forth a seditious conspiracy, an effort to interfere with the transfer of power, and it brings new gravitas to the way that DOJ is viewing these events, confirming that they're going after the heart of a conspiracy to take down democracy. According to the indictment, Rhodes became more serious about stopping Mr. Biden from assuming office in early January, the same month he began spending $17,000 on military-grade firearms, ammunition, and other tactical gear. He seemed to relish the chaos on the Capitol on January 6th, prosecutors said. The indictment noted that shortly after 3 p.m. that day, a member of his signal group chat sent him a message saying that members of Congress had been given gas masks and are trying to get out, Rhodes allegedly said. Fuck them. Now it's Rhodes and his arrogant cohort of far-right extremists who are the ones about to get fucked. 
They successfully evaded prosecution for years by wrapping themselves in the flag. Not anymore, fellas. Sedition means you are traitors and will be branded as such for the rest of your lives. It's important to note here, inside this indictment, there is no, as far as I can tell, direct link to the Trump White House or the Trump political world. They haven't written that down yet. But does that mean at this point that investigators aren't looking for that link? Oh, heck no, they'll be looking for that. Look, you have one simple, not simple, but one uh, straight line case here. That is, did people gather together with the idea that this might be a, a Civil War 2.0? Yes. That's a totally different question from the politically explosive question of was there any communication before or after with, for example, a congressional office. I don't see why you'd have to put that in the indictment, but that's why people like the January 6th committee want to talk to members of Congress. Did you talk to these people and we'd like to see your phone records? That's why they're going with subpoenas to the Silicon Valley saying we want data. This is not done yet, John. While the arrest of Rhodes for seditious conspiracy will strike a blow against the entire far-right militia movement, it still stopped short of arresting and charging those people who actually organized the insurrection. If the Oath Keepers were the paramilitary force, we still need to hear from those who they communicated with. It may not have been Donald Trump, but we know they were protecting Roger Stone. Who else did they coordinate with leading up to January 6th? Unfortunately, this is the frustrating part of the investigation. We only get so far up the ladder. Now comes word that Kevin fucking McCarthy is refusing to testify before the January 6th committee, slamming shut the possibility that we'll ever know what Trump said to the minority leader as the Capitol was being ransacked. By doing so, he has raised the prospect of a subpoena of the highest ranking House Republican, prompting legal questions with little court precedent and escalating the political stakes of the investigation. Top House Republican Kevin McCarthy defiant tonight in the face of a request for testimony from the January 6th committee. There is nothing that I can provide the January 6th committee for legislation of them moving forward. There is nothing in that realm. It is pure politics of what they're playing. Representative Scott Perry and asshole Jim fucking Jordan, who spoke with Trump leading up to and during and after the insurrection, have also balked at the committee's request for voluntary interviews. Last Wednesday, McCarthy issued a blistering statement condemning the committee as illegitimate and saying that he would refuse to cooperate with its inquiry. On Thursday, he argued that the panel was violating the privacy of Republicans through subpoenas for bank and phone records. McCarthy also again denounced Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Democrat of California, for having rejected two of his five choices to sit on the panel, one of whom was motherfucking Jim Jordan. Never did I think a speaker would play such politics, he declared. McCarthy's refusal now to detail his conversations with Donald Trump during and after the attack, a departure from his position last summer. Would you be willing to testify about your conversation with Donald Trump on January 6th if you were asked by an outside commission? Sure. You Next would. question. The Republican leader now joining two other House Republicans in refusing to cooperate. Is it problematic for the investigation if all House Republicans just have refused to talk to them? No, but we will seek the truth. We will find the truth. Now the committee, who say they have conducted nearly 400 interviews, must decide what steps they're willing to take to secure those of their colleagues. It seems that McCarthy is relishing the opportunity to play martyr, 
the possibility that he is charged like Steve Bannon with felony criminal contempt is unprecedented in modern American politics and raises all manner of legal questions as well as a myriad of challenges facing the committee to get these schmucks to tell the fucking truth. Look, I, I think the reality is McCarthy is a very weak leader. Uh, and as a result, he is already being led around by the most extreme elements of his conference, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and others that uh, are calling for retribution because of their removal. The departure from precedent here was McCarthy's failure to hold his own members accountable, uh, which traditionally Democratic leaders and Republican leaders have policed their own. But McCarthy's been too weak to do that. Uh, and so it required Democrats to take action when Paul Gosar uh, was glorifying the killing of one of uh, his colleagues. And similarly, uh, when Marjorie Taylor Greene was spouting her conspiratorial QAnon uh, and anti-Semitic stuff. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think the precedent that's been broken here has been broken by McCarthy. It doesn't surprise me, though, that he is being led already by these extreme elements. And, uh, and it's one of the reasons why he can never be allowed to become speaker. More importantly, though, if I can say, Aaron, than whatever he might do vis-a-vis -vis Democrats and committee assignments is the fact that he will do whatever Donald Trump wants him to do. Uh, and if Donald Trump wants him to overturn the next election because Trump loses again, uh, McCarthy will do it. In a letter on Wednesday, Representative Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi and the chairman of the committee, said the panel wanted to ask Mr. McCarthy a range of questions about both his efforts to get Mr. Trump to issue a statement calling off the mob during the attack and his conversations with the president in the days after the attack, apparently including efforts to get him to stop challenging Mr. Biden's presidential victory. Look, Kevin's a coward, he's a moral coward. Uh, he, if he goes to that committee, he's gonna have two options. Number one, either he has to perjure himself to protect Donald Trump or tell the truth about what happened and piss off Donald Trump and therefore lose Donald Trump's support. He can't be speaker. At the end of the day, Kevin's going to do whatever he can. He'll sell whoever he can, do whatever he can. He's a craven politician to become the Speaker of the House. And that's what you're seeing. In his statement later that day, Mr. McCarthy accused the committee of an abuse of power, complaining that it wants to interview me about public statements that have been shared with the world and private conversations not remotely related to the violence that unfolded at the Capitol. Did you tell House Republicans on a January 11th phone call that President Trump told you he agreed that he bore some responsibility for January 6th, as Chairman Thompson's letter indicates? I'm not sure what call you're talking I say he has responsibility. He told me personally that he does have some responsibility. Mr. Thompson has said publicly several times that nobody is off limits and that the panel would consider issuing subpoenas for members of Congress who do not voluntarily cooperate with the investigation. In a January 2nd interview on NBC's Meet the Press, he said, I think there are some questions of whether we have the authority to do it. We're looking at it. If the authorities are there, there'll be no reluctance on our part. That doesn't mean the president is free from fault. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. These facts require immediate action by President Trump. Accept his share of responsibility. Quell the brewing unrest. And ensure President-elect Biden is able to successfully begin his term. And the president's immediate action also deserves congressional action. 
which is why I think a fact-finding commission and a censure resolution would be prudent. Unfortunately, that is not where we are today. Truly, this past week was one of the most difficult for Congress and our nation. Of all the days here, last Wednesday was the worst day I've ever seen in Congress. Our country is deeply hurt. Let's get real, though. McCarthy is covering up for Trump in the worst possible way. In refusing to testify to the House Select Committee, McCarthy is allowing Trump to get away with a litany of crimes. That's because McCarthy, who reportedly appealed to Trump as the violence unfolded, likely has some of the most direct knowledge available of Trump's conduct as the mob rampaged continued. That could have criminal implications if Trump's attempt to subvert the electoral count in Congress amounted to an effort to obstruct an official proceeding. His own statements came into the Senate impeachment trial through Republican Congresswoman Jamie Herrera Butler, who McCarthy told he had called Donald Trump on January 6th, essentially to say, help us, save us from this, and Trump said, oh, it's not my people, it's not MAGA, it's yeah. Antifa. And at that point, McCarthy said, no, it's not Antifa, it's your people, and you got to save us. And then Trump, of course, uh, famously said, well, maybe they just care a little bit more about a fair election than you do, Kevin. Um, but he's got to cover up the fact that he did the right thing in reacting like a human being, saying, call these dogs off. And now he's got to cover it up because they're so sycophantic and submissive to this pathological leader, Donald Trump. The true nature of what that conversation was continues to evade the public record. It's not just that it could reveal that Trump displayed a callous disregard for human life, as well as extraordinary depravity and malevolence in ignoring numerous frantic pleas to call off the rioters. It's also that this knowledge could reveal that Trump may have come to see the violence as instrumentally helpful to his cause of subverting the election's outcome. Did he or did he not send the Oath Keepers on a mission to subvert the election? Was the violence that they deliberate, and if so, who gave the ultimate orders? These are questions we may never get answered. And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa is the Lincoln Project advisor and ad man Rick Wilson, who more than anyone helped build the modern Republican Party pre-Donald Trump. His political ads not only helped elect then-Mayor Rudy Giuliani, but also George Herbert Walker Bush. An early convert and never-Trumper, Wilson has written two New York Times number one bestsellers. The first was entitled, Everything Trump Touches Dies, and lamented the Republican Party's realignment behind Donald Trump. In 2020, he released his second book, Running Against the Devil, a plot to save America from Trump and Democrats from themselves. In addition, Wilson hosts the widely popular New Abnormal podcast for The Daily Beast with writer Molly Junk Fast, as well as The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer on LPTV. My conversation with him today is wide-ranging and seeks to understand how we can charge a man like Stuart Rhodes with sedition, yet ignore people like Steve Bannon who did so much to set the entire plot in motion. So buckle up, folks, because Wilson pulls no punches and doesn't give a fuck. He tells it straight whether you want to hear the truth or not. 
So let's go now to that conversation. So Rick, Kevin McCarthy is now refusing to testify before the January 6th committee. Now, he's quite possibly the most consequential witness in that he was in direct contact with Trump during that day. Now, the Washington Post believes he's covering up Trump's crimes, especially obstruction of an official proceeding. Where do you see all this going and what game is McCarthy actually playing? Is he betting that he can stall, delay, or wait out the committee? And finally, what do you think that he actually knows? Or you think he's just bullshitting? No, I, look, I think he was in touch with Trump that day. There have been, there's been a lot of reporting that they were in communication. I'm sure he was, like, at the time, being a sane person going, cut the shit out, Donald. And Trump was basically telling him to fuck off. I think, however, what he's, the game he's playing right now is all about holding on to the speakership. Because he knows right now there are there's there's if the Republicans take back the House, there will be a overwhelming majority of pure far right Trump crazy people in that in in the Republican caucus. And he is not their first choice. They'd much rather have a Jim Jordan than a Kevin McCarthy. So the game he's playing right now is try to keep Trump happy, try to keep the crazies happy, hold the line and hope he can like run out the clock and and then be speaker when the elections roll up in November. That's my guess on what he's doing. I think the guy knows everything. He's got all the rece- I think he's got all the receipts. So what, what, what's important here is whether the Democrats have some stones and they hold this guy to account because he knows things, they have the right to ask for them, and, and it's important that they, that they hold the line on it and, and press him because otherwise he's going to play this game in order to hold on to the speakership. You think that's the only thing? I mean, look, we know for a fact. Oh, I think he's afraid of being killed. Well, that's probably true, too. Um, it's not He's not in a good place right oh. now, not even with Trump. You see, the problem is, and I tried to explain it to Jim Jordan, to Mark Meadows, and the rest of those Republican fools that sat there attacking me at the House Oversight Committee. Right. I know what Kevin McCarthy's doing, and I know what Donald Trump is thinking at the same time. Let's go back for two seconds and talk about Kevin McCarthy's own testimony on the floor when he turned around and he emphatically stated that Donald Trump is responsible for the January 6th insurrection. That was the kiss of death for Donald Trump. You fucking stabbed me in the back, which is really not the back because he did do it. So therefore it's in the front, front. (laughs) but you were disloyal. Hence my book. You were disloyal. And as a result, you're on the outs. Now, Kevin McCarthy came back, he tried to kiss the ring, to kiss the ass, to do everything that he needed to do in order to get back into the good graces of Donald Trump. Yep. And that's, that's extremely, extremely rare. Right now, there's like only two or three people that I can name that actually got back into Trump's good graces, though he would throw them under the bus in a second. Sure. No different than like what he did to me. Why? Because all that he remembers is what goes on inside that head. That you, you motherfucker, were disloyal to me. I may need you today, so I'm going to placate you and pretend like I forgot about yep. it. But that fucking elephant doesn't forget a goddamn thing. And it's like, you know, I, the, and you, you've talked about this before. The guy has a certain degree, like, just basic fucking cruelty all the time. He loves torturing people. He loves making them beg for their lives. He loves making them, you know, uh, kiss his ass. 
and then pull the rug out when they need him. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. He was cruel to virtually every single person in the Trump organization. Regardless of age, didn't make a difference. Regardless of position, made no difference. Regardless of all the good things that you ended up doing for him, it made no difference. All he can think about is the last thing that went through his head. I mean, I remember there was a guy who happens to still be there, Alan Garten, in right. front of the entire company. In, fr in front of the entire company, he was going through a divorce. Right. And he had moved out to a, an apartment while the wife with the children had the house. Yeah, yeah. And, we were, and he was giving away Samsung televisions because they had gotten a whole bunch of them for the hotel, um, whether it was in Chicago or somewhere else, maybe Soho. Right. So he turns around, and of course they all lie, and he, and he says, oh, this, this person just won, because it was like a raffle. This person just won. Exactly what he needed. He's going through a tough time. His wife threw him out like a dog, which isn't true, right? Uh, he, goes, right. he goes, he probably has nothing there. It's a 72-inch Samsung high-definition television, and he calls up Alan Garten in front of the entire company, which was downstairs for the Christmas party. Merry fucking Christmas, asshole. And yet, this guy fights for him tooth and nail, even to this day, as general counsel. That's Donald. Unbelievable. Yeah, no, it, it, it's 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 what we've seen. And look, it's like everybody that worked in the White House got abused and and treated like shit. And and they they would come and go. And they always knew that they had to keep, you know, keep the ass kissing running twenty four seven, or they were going to be the one that 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 was quote unquote disloyal or 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 in the shitter that day. It, it's just like uh, that that American that seventy million Americans voted for a guy that they saw do that all the time still blows my damn mind. Yeah, and it should blow your mind. But yet, there's testimony. And this is what bothers me about this January 6th committee. And so on. they, and I talked about this on recent podcasts that I have done. I talked about it on television. They have already spoken with over 300 people regarding the January 6th insurrection. Mm -hmm. Now, I know because I was in front of Congress m about 10 times, each and every time that I was there, they kept me for a minimum of nine hours. Minimum of nine hours. Right. One of them went 11 hours. But for the average, it was nine hours. That's 2,700 hours. Divided by 24 hours in a day, it's 112 and a half days of testimony. Straight testimony from people. And yep. you're telling me that you'd only get this guy Rhodes, this fucking jerk off from the, uh, you know, from, what are they, the Oath Keepers? All Oath that, Keepers. All that you get is a bunch of these low-level assholes that ended up telling the committee that they actually went there because Trump told them to do it. Right? I mean... It, 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 that That's the thing that worries me, Michael, about, about the committee and about the DOJ. Right now... And yeah, you know, look, David David Rowe, or Stuart Rhodes from Oath Keepers, that was a that was the biggest thing they've gotten so far in all this fucking time. Are you kidding me? I mean, this is not this 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 is a conspiracy, and it's a and it's sedition, but most of it's handled out in broad fucking daylight. I mean, and they and they the the hesitation to start going up the chain to Roger Stone and to Ali Alexander and to Alex Jones. And, um, and, um, and uh, to Mark Meadows and all these people who were in the thick of this fucking conspiracy. Uh, it makes me very hesitant to get all optimistic that we're going to see some justice here. Yeah, well, you, ha you have every right to feel that way. I mean, and 
there was so much testimony given to that January 6th committee about the shouting match that went on between Trump and McCarthy. And it's not one person yeah. that's making the allegation. It was multiple people. Multiple people made the allegation that McCarthy said, you got to call it off. Multiple people said that Ivanka turned around and told daddy, right? You know, daddy, right. you have to stop this. Multiple people, including with text messages and so on, between Don Jr. and Mark Meadows and others, indicates that they told him to stop. That you got to get out there. You Correct. have to stop this. It's going too far. And I can tell you, as I have on this podcast from day number one on January 6th when it was happening, I turned around and I told you that Donald fucking Trump was sitting in a room, watching it on television, and enjoying, enjoying with the greatest of pride that these idiots are out there wearing MAGA gear, carrying Trump 2020 yep. flags, carrying Trump flags, He's counting the number of red hats that are out there, and he is elated at what they are doing because they're doing it in his name, in his honor. And that's a, that's a sick human being. You know, on, on January 6th last year, uh, Tara and I went live on LPTV for Lincoln Project, and I talked through this thing, and I said, I said, you know, I've been an anthropologist of Donald Trump. I've studied him more than a lot of people will ever, you know, would ever want to. And I promise you, he loves this. He loves this. He loves the fact that they're beating up the cops. He loves the fact that it's gone crazy. He thinks it's great television. He loves it. This is this is like spank bank material for this guy. He thinks this is amazing. And that's part of the spectacle of like violence that that the, the Oath Keepers, the Boogaloos and the Proud Boys, all these other assholes thought was going to be was going to change the day. And and we're just really lucky that nobody got no, nobody. No member of Congress got killed by a mob because I think Trump would still be in office if they had honest answer. I think they were there's such a bunch of chicken shits um, that that they would have that they would have basically said, I don't want to cross this guy. You know, when I was and that's what he counted. on. Yeah. When I was watching Rick the other day, uh, the um, what Rhodes, uh, what's his name? David Rhodes talking about and yeah, yeah. his lawyer who got up there, you know, and blah, 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 uh, stuttering away, you know, trying to come up with a, with an answer that doesn't make that really didn't make him look stupider than what he really is. All I kept thinking of is March 29th of 1951, when Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were charged with espionage. Now, I get <laughs> it, you know, and. 100%. I mean, you know, they stole the plans for an atomic bomb. They were going to sell it to our... Right. They were going to sell it to our... Is, is what David Rhodes, Steve Bannon, others... You know what? Let me ask you this question in a different way. Yesterday, you tweeted, if David Rhodes of the Oath Keepers can be charged with sedition, because I consider sedition to be on par with... Uh, what the Rosenbergs did, which is, you know, um, which was espionage. I think it's the same. I think sure. it should carry the same weight. But if Rhodes of the Oath Keeper and Steve um, can be charged with sedition, so can Steve Bannon. And I'm curious how you view the Justice Department's efforts thus far to bring those responsible for January 6th to justice and why they have yet to charge any one of Trump's inner circles, much less the former asshole himself. That's that's a real. I mean, that's that's my deepest concern here, Michael. Is that 
Steve Bannon goes on a fucking podcast every day and talks about burning down the government, talks about overthrowing the government, talks about overturning the election. He does it every day. Right now, he's still doing it. I promise you, today on his podcast, a, a decent fucking attorney could have found something where Steve Bannon called for violence or the overthrow of the government. He does it every fucking day. He was an active participant in this. He's talking about, like, wait till you see what we have planned for tomorrow. It's going to change everything. This guy knew what he was doing. He was encouraging it. He was helping plan and organize it. He sees himself as like a revolutionary figure. And as I like to say, I want the Justice Department to act with a degree of swiftness and clarity so that Steve Bannon can get what he really deserves, which is a wall, a blindfold, and one last cigarette. Because this guy, he's the he's the cancer at the center of this, and he's brilliantly exploited the, the moment. You know, Trump may have thrown him out and called him Sloppy Steve and everything else, but the minute Bannon was organizing and engineering things for this this little little coup attempt, he was back on the good list. So we got a we've got a guy here who is so dangerous. And again, you've also got to get to Roger Stone and Ali Alexander and Mark Meadows and all these assholes that were in the middle of this thing. All these fucking people that were at the Willard Hotel in the command center of the coup. I mean, they need to be. I, I said this yesterday. If Steve Bannon was an Islamic religious leader saying the same kind of shit about overthrowing the government, he'd be in Gitmo. This is a guy who is, they, they are actively doing this. They are actively planning this. They have not stopped. They're going to keep going until either we stop them or they stop this country. You know, it's funny because um, going back, I think it was around March of 2017, give or take, around the time that Trump declared that you know, travel ban, which he acknowledged to me privately in the Oval Office was not a travel ban. It was really a Muslim ban. And and I said right. to him, you realize how fucked up that is? You can't ban a religion from the United States. Now, you can ban if something's going on, like in Syria, you can ban, you know, individuals from Syria coming into the United States under the guise of national security. I totally get it, and I'm for it. I'm not for open borders. I'm for- Of course I'm, not. Nobody no, is. Nobody is, right? Yeah. However, when I said that to him, he turned around and he said to me, yeah, I know, Steve, you know, he goes, Bannon and Miller, they really fucked this one up, but don't worry, we'll get it right the next time. Which, of course, he never got it. Which, of course, he, that's not the way government is supposed to. He never gets to, anything right, right the second time. That's not the way that government is supposed to operate. Oh, that's all right. You know, I followed exactly what Bannon and Miller, two fucking white supremacists. Even though Steve Miller is Jewish, he's a self-loathing Jew. His own family won't speak to him because he's fucking right. deranged. Right. But this was a this was a, this was a Muslim ban. And I only thought of that when you turned around and said, what if he was an imam? Right. What if he was an imam? Right. right. All of a sudden, what would happen? Preaching violent overthrow of the U.S. government. By the way, say the, what same, say the same thing about what was going on January 6th at the Capitol steps. What if it wasn't a group of white men? Right. And women standing there. What if it was a group of black and brown? What do you think would have happened? The fucking National Guard yeah. would have been called out. The military would have been called out. There would have been bodies all over the Capitol steps. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Think, think about this alternate history, right? Think about this counterfactual alternate history. Let's say Biden won and won and 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 or, or Trump won outright, and Biden contested the election, and six thousand Black Lives Matter people stormed the Capitol, started beating cops and, and kicking in the doors. They would have fucking drone striked them. 
They would the National Guard would have been there in a hot minute. We would have a stack of dead people, dead protesters. That's what would have happened. How many people? So this. How many people did you say, Rick? How many people did you say? Like 6,000 on the steps. Yeah, you probably then would have had somewhere in the ballpark of 5,000 to 5,200 dead bodies laying there. He would have called out the National Guard. He would have called out the, the, the no military. He would, have, he would have told 100%. them to start shooting away, right? You know, and, and he would have actually been successful in making it appear as if though Black Lives Matter was trying to overthrow the government. Right. And his supporters would be flooding his bank account with more money than what they've already done. And that's scary because just as soon as Ted Cruz says something fucking stupid, just as soon as we've already saw this, Rand Paul, when he went after Anthony Fauci, after Dr. Fauci the other day, started, what do you call it, soliciting donations off of his attacks on Dr. Fauci. What they've realized is that Donald Trump and his vitriol creates an opportunity for them to fucking grift off of the American, you know, citizenry. That they're able to go ahead and they're able to raise significant Lauren Boebert every single time she says something fucking stupid, which is virtually every time she opens her mouth, she's fundraising off of it, and these same stupid people keep flooding her bank account with it. Now, I believe that while Trump thinks that this is okay and so on, people like DeSantis and others, right, who are also raising big war chests for 2024, all of a sudden Trump is going to turn around and find he's got a lot of competition out there from the Republican Party. It'll be more than 17 like it was in 2016. And they are going to eviscerate him. Every single question is going to be an attack on his personality. It's gonna, you're going to start to have things revealed um, to the public that we don't know about. And it's going, to be, it's going to be ugly for him. And then he's going to really know what disloyal is. Well, you know, I think, I think you, you can see the outline of the battle between DeSantis and Trump already shaping up right now. And, and, and frankly, it's going to be a real question because um, a lot of the, a lot of the like, establishment money in D.C. now, they want, they want Trumpism without Trump. So they're going to try to get the guys like DeSantis or Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton into that fight against him. And, you know, I think, I think he's going to be, it's going to be miserable and ugly for him. Um, I still think the base is so loyal to him that it's a, it's a, it's, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the bloodbath personally. I think it's going to be absolutely fucking brutal on all sides. And these guys, it's like a knife fight in a dark room. They're all going to be going after each other, but he's the best and biggest target. Um, but the, the way they're trying to skate the middle is like, Praise Trump enough, hold on to him enough, don't get him pissed off at you publicly, and then hope he dies or goes to jail. That's really their bet. You know, that's their that's their that's their long bet is that Trump is either in jail or dead or unable to run for whatever reason. But you know, the guy's like herpes. He's just it's like impossible to get rid of him uh, unless you burn it all down. Yeah, it's it's crazy. But uh, you know, which brings me to my next question to you, Rick, because. Trump continues to roast and to lambast uh, Ron DeSantis on the COVID vaccine now in Florida right. and whatever else that he can use to you know, pummel the shit out of this um, Florida governor. It seems that he views DeSantis as his main rival 
and he's using every single opportunity to throw mud at the guy. Now, the question is, if there was a path forward for DeSantis, is he any better a choice than Trump, or is he just another fucking chip off the old MAGA block, another Donald Trump 2.0? No, you know what he is? You know what he is? He's Trump. He, he's Trump with an Ivy League degree, you know? He's Trump with a degree from Yale and Harvard. Um, the guy is, the guy is, in many ways, I think Trump doesn't like DeSantis because he sees so much of himself in the guy. He's intensely egotistical. He's he, he's cruel to his people. He's disloyal to people. You cross him one time and you're always on the fucking list. I mean, the guy is, and and he's got a weird personality. And it, like in person, DeSantis is very off-putting. He's not a warm individual. He's not, you don't connect with him. He's always like, you can see the gears running in the guy's brain when you're in the room with him. So, you know, I don't think he's any better than Trump. I think he's in some ways more dangerous because he can, you know, lay back on the, oh, I'm, I've got a degree from Harvard. I've got a law degree from Yale. I'm a normal person. But he still believes in the same kind of shit Trump does. And he's still got the same kind of weird mental, mental strange, the strange mental landscape Rick, that Trump does. I'm going to have to disagree with you on something. I agree with you that Ron DeSantis is a really weird fucking guy, whether it's in person, television, and whatnot. Very different than right. Trump. People will tell you, myself included, I have watched him charm the pants right. off of people when he's in person. He's incredibly yeah. flattering to you. He is incredibly gracious to you until the second you walk out the door and he's laughing for example at the evangelicals i'll never forget because i became friendly with a multitude of them and i turned around and right afterwards you know because he sure. sat there he goes i want to hear from all of you you're the important ones in the room and they're all sitting there holy shit donald trump says we're important right and they're all beginning to <laughs> beam and glow and then they're talking about abortion which they are you know fundamentally against and he's like i'm against abortion too and they're sitting there and now they're like oh my god this is our this is our messiah and he he's astute enough and he's dangerous enough because of his personality disorders to say the right things to your face. Then when we're upstairs, right. he turns around and he looks at me and he goes, you believe the bullshit that these people fucking believe? They're all scam artists. You know, uh, we had uh, Joel Osteen, you know, came to the office. He's like, you ever see the size of that fuck? You ever Pastor see the size Paula? of that fucking Paula. guy's stadium? He fills it up. These people are throwing. It's like he passes around a box. They fill it up with, with half a million dollars every time he goes on. I mean, this is how Trump is thinking. Everybody's full of shit. Everyone's a con artist. Everyone is trying to grift. You know why? He sees in them what he sees in himself. It's what he's doing. Of course, it's projection, it's projection right? So, <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, no, Michael. You're 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 right. I, I don't think I phrased it very well. Ron DeSantis cannot be. He's not a charming person, one on one. He, he's just not. Um, but you know what he? But his. I think one thing he has figured out is the Republican base now rewards you for being an asshole all the time. They reward being an asshole all the time. And, and that helps them uh, move forward on, on, on being able to do the fundraising stuff. Cause his fundraising is all like the, the Trumpian lines of let's go Brandon and all the other bullshit. So, you know, Trump taught them all how to do this in a, in a weird way to the, to appeal to the current Republican party. He's very good at that, but it is harder, I think, for him to build like interpersonal relationships. 
The guy doesn't have an inner circle of like people around him who, who he relies on other than his wife. Um, you know, he doesn't have that ability to, to, to like inspire internal loyalty. He may aspire fans, but not mm-hmm. necessarily internal yeah. loyalty. Now, I want to go back to something that we were talking about before, and that's, you know, your comment about the DOJ. You wish that they would, you know, just fucking get on with it, right? We talked about the um, January 6th committee after 300 hours. Why not now just go ahead and refer this case to Merrick Garland so that, you know, maybe he, you know, he could make a decision whether that they're going to bring charges. They have more than enough evidence. And, you know, we all know that it's slow moving. Let me just let me add one more thing to this question to you. McCarthy, who, of course, came out originally, said, of course, I'm going to cooperate with the January 6th panel. And now all of a sudden he's taking a step back. Now he won't cooperate with the January 6th panel. How is it? First of all, I have two questions for you on that. First, if you are a member of Congress and you're refusing to comply with the chamber to which you are affiliated with, how can he right. still even be there? I mean, that's the part that bothers me. Their rules don't make any sense. Yeah. And second, this, if I was Merrick Garland, if I was the attorney general of this country right now, rest assured, I'd have McCarthy strip fucking naked like they do to you when you're going through the system. I've been through it plenty of times, right? Right. You strip his fucking ass naked, you make him stand there, and you turn around and you give him an orange jumpsuit, and you do the same shit that they did to me. Put me into a fucking freezer for seven hours with the air blowing on the top of your head where it's so fucking cold, you feel like your teeth are going to fall out. Okay, we're going to let you out now for about 15 minutes. You're changing your mind, moron. No? Okay, back in the freezer for you. That's what they did to me. Why should? Why is he any better? He's not better than I am. He's a fucking scumbag. The 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 the, the privilege of being a member of Congress should not grant you one more iota of protection or courtesy or treatment from the processes of justice. I'm sorry. Being a member of Congress that means you have been sent to Washington to represent your people. That doesn't give you a special license to defy the law. And he's defying the law. He's defying the committee. And, and the ironic thing is, if Republicans take over and they subpoena Nancy Pelosi, just as an example, and she doesn't do it, they'll fucking put her in jail. Their Democrats cannot get their shit together. They don't understand these people. This isn't a contest of like, of like, you know, how do you deal with some minor bullshit? This is life or death. They gotta, they, they've got to strap up here and really understand that these people are not playing by the rules and they think they're going to get away with it. They think they're going to run out the clock and get away with it. They have to yeah, move They have faster. to move. Forget about faster. They have to move. Yeah, move first. Right. Move I first. Mean, it, it's, move it's incredible. <laughs> I, you know, I do have to turn around and say this. You know, I don't know whether it's because of this show, because of all of my television appearances or whatnot, where I constantly attack Merrick Garland for Michael Carvajal, the former um, head of the Bureau of Prisons, who thankfully resigned at the beginning of this week. But one of the things I will turn around and say is right. that finally, finally, they are doing what they are required to do. But of course, like government, right to the last fucking second, as we say in prison, door to door on the first step back, they're finally now calling people up. They don't have the process yet finished. They've only had four years or four and a half years within which to figure this out, which is probably an afternoon with two or three people to figure it out. Because 
I guarantee you, you and I can sit down with a whiteboard and figure out a process. In, in that a half go a faster. day, there's no doubt about it. And they make four and a half right. years finally, only because of you know um, the way the First Step Act was written. I brought an action against the Bureau of Prisons, against the United States government under the First Step Act that was heard by Judge Codal, and he ended up. And I, 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 I won't agree or disagree with his decision, despite the fact it was not good for me, where he said that the case does not warrant moving forward by, with a decision by the judge under the issue of ripeness. That government right. still had at that time 11, um, 11 and a half months in order to finish this January 24th date, to get to that January 24th date where it has to be implemented. He may or may not realize how important that decision actually was, because what it said to the you know to government is that come January 24th, if you don't have it done, I know that there's going to be a ton of habeas corpus petitions and we're going to have to answer it because the only reason that we can't grant Cohen, despite the fact other federal judges did like. Uh, Judge Renee Marie Bum out of New Jersey. She said, it's bullshit. It's not, doesn't have to go to the absolute last day. They should have done it already right. because of your proximity to getting out. Putting all that aside, Judge right. Kodal may or may not understand that his decision was so important in forcing Merrick Garland to get somebody to do what's needed to be done. And this is going to assist more than 20,000 federal inmates of the lowest level classification meaning there's no crime there's no violence right. most of it is right. there's no there's no violent risk and these factors people, right you know are of no danger to society you know and you know i'm i'm very thankful i already know sure, a sure. handful of people that they called them up today they're going in they're having ankle bracelets removed they're now off of their home confinements and they're you know now on supervised release if they have i know a couple of guys who are in prison that are right, now right. out simply because of this so i'm thankful for merrick garland sure. finally doing something but for god's sakes that's one aspect and that pales in comparison to a seditious act by a group of people trying to overthrow the government on behalf of the Fuhrer. It, it is. It, it, it still comes back to me. And I, I think about this almost every day. And the committee got pissed off at me because I had heard from inside the committee uh, from two different people that they were slow rolling. They didn't really want to do this. They thought it, it was, you know, it was it wasn't going to really go anywhere. So they shouldn't do I like, couldn't shouldn't put it front and center. I, I said so. And I got yelled at by them. I don't care. I juiced them to, to get it moving in some way, I guess. Um, but the, this idea, this idea that you can, you, when, when people say, Hey, I'm going to burn your fucking house down. I promise you, I'm going to burn your fucking house down. I got the gas in this hand, Zippo in the other, I'm going to burn your house down. You don't say, Oh, well, I'll just wait until you're about to burn my house down. I'll wait until you've poured the gas all over the front steps. I'll wait until you set the fire. No, when they tell you what they're going to do, you've got to stop them. The DOJ knows these people have not stopped this effort to overthrow the election. They're going to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. They need to treat everybody involved like the conspirators they are. And honestly, they need to treat Trump like like the like the for the role he played in it, where he was knowledgeable of it. His I guarantee you Meadows and those guys were rubbing elbows the night before going, wait till you see what we do tomorrow, boss. It's going to be great. 100%. You're going to love it. 100%. It's going to be great. 
Don't worry. Uh, you'll love it. It'll be great television, Mr. President. I can hear that fucking that guy is he's a terrible cocksucker. I mean, he is just like a like a, a horrible meadows. He's, I can I can see that him greasing Trump up on it. Like, you're going to love it, Mr. President. You wait. Steve has got a plan and they're going to do this. And, that. and they should treat him that way. They should at least drag his ass up for questioning. I don't I, you know, people when 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 democracies fall, no one realizes it's happening and no one believes it's happening. And when it happens, they're all like, well, what the fuck was that? I don't know how that happened. I'll tell you how it happened. It's when you ignore the people that are threatening to burn down your system of government and to overthrow your elections at the whim of the of the of the dear leader. If you if you ignore those people, pretend they don't exist, pretend it's not going to happen, then you're going to get fucked. You're going to lose everything. And and I I this is not business as usual in DC for these guys. They need to understand this is not how the world the world should end for for American democracy. But if they don't hold people accountable and literally put the bad actors in jail, and I don't mean the fucking guy with the horns or the jackass with the Confederate flag, I mean the plotters and the planners and the schemers and the people who sent yeah, them. Yeah, understand this it mission. is not Donald alone. It's Don Jr. It's Eric Trump. It's Laura no. Trump. It's Rudy Colludi Giuliani. You have a host. There's this Amy Kramer. There's a whole slew of Mark Meadows. There is a whole slew of these individuals that were involved. Every one of these motherfuckers that was sitting there in the Willard Hotel the night before, right, having this this powwow, this yep. insurrection powwow. Each and every one of them, there should be charges brought against them. People don't understand as well. You know, the lawsuit that I brought and we were successful in finally serving dear old Donald uh, the other day, people don't understand. We got them all now. We, we have them all. Nice. We have Michael Carvajal, DOJ. We have Trump. We, we have them all. Bill Barr. We got him in his underwear walking down the street. Yeah. Yeah, I saw you got him in his, yeah, in his, in his, in his shorts. I can imagine what the fuck that looks like. But putting all that aside, people don't uh, understand no, don't that, that lawsuit is so much more than just Michael Cohen. It is. I am. I may be the correct, named correct. person, you know, in that action. But this is really about our democracy. And I say this all the time to people. And I wish I wish more people would keep talking about it. What ends up happening, the two ways you destroy a democracy. First, take away people's ability to speak. State-run news, state-run you know, uh, television, state-run newspapers. Take away people's First Amendment rights. North Korea, right? Number two, what do right. you do? You empower the military. You take over the military or you create your own paramilitary group to take over. That's the two ways to make to make a democracy into an autocracy. It was done, whether it's in Saudi Arabia, yep. it was done in North Korea, it's done in Russia. That's, now, if that's what Americans want, these fucking dummies that keep supporting Donald and the sedition, I don't understand why they're even here in this country anymore. And what bothers me is, you know, um, I was on MSNBC with Alex Wood about two weeks ago. Hakeem Jeffries and Ted Lieu, both of them penned a letter asking the OIG at the time, Michael Hurwitz, to provide them with information regarding and to open up an investigation into the unconstitutional remand right. of me back to prison. And the reason that that letter is so relevant 
despite the fact that both of them and their offices just let it slide by. They completely just let it go, which to me, I don't understand. But it's so relevant, really for one reason. You have to understand the deviousness of Donald. These were both practice runs, all right? The, the action to get Rick, the action Absolutely. that they took against me was Donald trying to figure out how far he could rip the Constitution before there's a, um, a clashback against him. The second is January 6th insurrection. That mm-hmm. was a practice run as well. Take the first violation of the First Amendment, take the, the paramilitary or empower the military to overthrow the government. That's how you create an autocracy. And Donald desperately wants to be like Xi Jinping. He wants to be desperately like Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un, where he can have military parades down Fifth Avenue. You know why? Because he fucking feels like it. He wakes up one day, wants to be five years old again, right, and play with his toys. This time, each one of those toys aren't $12 that you pick up at, you know, Costco or your local store. He wants the real deal. Right. Yeah, look, uh, I have said this, two two big points to to address this, what you just said. One is, I say this all the time, a a coup that isn't punished is a training exercise. And that's what they're they're seeing here. They got away with it. They largely got away with this thing. Only only the the, the cannon fodder are getting prosecuted so far, not the, the ringleaders. And the second thing is, your, your point about him, and I wrote about this in one of my books, this is a guy who loves the idea of missile parades. I'm surprised he didn't have like a special uniform made, you know, like a Generalissimo from South America in the 1950s. This, he loves the authoritarian trappings, the the, the militaristic trappings, all that stuff is, it's like, a, you know, that's, I guess whatever fucked up weird fantasies he has about his, his strength and his power and his virility and all that are kind of wrapped up in that, but you know, he and he wanted he wanted all those military parades in downtown D.C. right from the beginning. So this is a guy who who he believes those things are rightfully his to use, no matter what the Constitution says, or the law says, or or or, or a two hundred forty year tradition of American, you know, small D democratic, uh, you know, political action. Yes, it's true. Say. But I'm I'm curious for a second. The 2022 midterm elections could be, and they are in my estimation, the single most consequential in a generation in that they could return the GOP to the majority and give these fucking lunatics full run of the asylum. Now, I'm curious what you're thinking about the midterms and how afraid should we all be if the GOP does actually retake the majority? What do you think is the worst thing that could happen? Well, I think... I think that that you if the, the Republicans take back the majority on day one, you're going to see uh, a very um, immediate uh, declaration. They're going to impeach Joe Biden and they're going to impeach Vice President Harris in the House. They're going to start investigations that make Benghazi look like a look like a warm up act. Um, and and they're going to use the full power of the government uh, of the of the of the legislative branch, of the government to begin investigating and persecuting um, you know, every Democrat that they that they have in their in their sights, they are going to engage in things that enshrine the big lie of Trump. They're going to pass um, or they're going to try to pass at least legislation that 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 does nothing but make Trump happy. They're going to try to do everything they can to stop, um, you know, any kind of any kind of 
um, you know, further appointments by Biden to the, either the courts or to the, or to the government. And it is going to turn in, like I said, it's going to be Benghazi on steroids times 100. They're going to investigate and persecute. And that's going to really hurt Biden going into 2024. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I'm personally I'm I'm in I'm in real fear yeah. for the future of this country. If, in fact, the Republicans end up taking back because you're right. The first thing they're going to do is go for impeachment. Yep. And then who knows what else that they're going to start to do. For, for sure, Joe Biden becomes a lame duck president. Day one. And then you got Mer- and Merrick Garland, all of these investigations, they're going to automatically shut down the January 6th committee. They're going to automatically shut down any investigations, Correct. federal, that are going on uh, with Trump. They're going to go ahead. They're going to try to put pressure on the Georgia case, on the D.C., the pick case, presidential inaugural committee case, the attorney general here in New York, the district attorney case here in New York. They're going to try to shut it all down using political influence. That's the scariest part. But I want to ask you this. right? Earlier this week, Rolling Stone revealed that three billionaire families right, funded the brain trust behind the big lie and the plan to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Now, much of the money went to the conservative Claremont Institute, which during the Trump years ultimately became a MAGA think tank. First off, if you would please discuss with me and my listeners what you know about the Claremont Institute and their impact on the GOP and the big lie in general. And then finally, What kind of accountability should big money donors who participate in these anti-democratic efforts, right? What what, um, accountability should they have and face when it comes to being charged with sedition and other crimes? Yeah, I I mean, look, first of all, let me handle what Claremont was and what it is. It used to be a center-right think tank about conservative values, economic freedom, you know, individual liberty, all the things that Republicans look like. 15, 20 years ago. During the Trump era, they were infected by a bunch of people who were frankly from that like alt-right white supremacist side of the equation. And then they became a sort of outlet for a lot of conservative money where they could push it to Claremont and basically launder it to these crazy people. And it became a place where the, 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 the ideas and the people they were promoting were increasingly radical and crazy. And now they are all in on the big lie. They fund a lot of the of the of the crazy attorneys um, that that have been litigating against you know the, the states on Trump's behalf through that uh, through that that resource, and and it is it is it has really become a sort of hotbed of MAGA um, and Trump uh, era craziness. Now, look, when you've got the Scafes and you've got the DeVosses uh, and other and other major donors. Who have fully embraced the big lie, you know, it is time and for groups on the outside to start pressuring those people and their board members, et cetera, which we've done some at Lincoln Project. Other groups have done it also to start pressuring them like, is this what you believe? Is this what your family believes? Is this what your, your employees are going to be happy with you pursuing? And it is something that it, it's got to be sustained and persistent and driven constantly in order to bring on an amount of pressure on these people that will make them stop this behavior. Now, Betsy DeVos is going to do what she's going to do. And you can't, you can't, you can't shame her out of the out of this situation. But there are a lot of other corporate donors who are funding these things too. Um, that it, 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 they can be shamed, they can be pressured, and it's important, I think, 
for the broader pro-democracy movement to be up on that all the time. Well, what about the Bradleys as an example? Can you shame them? Because I think that these billionaires probably shame. Yeah, you could probably shame them. The Scaifes, maybe yes, maybe no. But none of these people have ever had the pressure brought on their businesses after they've given these donations. This is why Democrats are fucking terrible at this stuff, Michael. They don't think in a bloodthirsty way about how do you put real pressure on the bad guy. And and they should be. They should be dragging Betsy DeVos up in front of that commission. They should be dragging the Mellon or the the the, the Bradleys and the Scapes up in front what of that. What about commission. the Mercers? They should drag that woman from Yeah. Oh, well, please. The Mercers should be dragged to fucking Gitmo, in my opinion. But that's just me because I'm a tougher guy than that. But um, but they should drag the the woman from Publix who helped fund the fund the rap, the march that day. They should put them in front of the hot lights and they should ask them the kind of shitty questions they asked you and drive home the knowledge of these people, and people will figure it out. You know, last year, Toyota said they weren't going to give any more money to the Sedition Caucus, right? And then they did, and when we went after them. We went out, we, we advertised um, at around the 20 biggest Toyota dealerships in the country in, their, in those markets, and Toyota caved in about a day because they were afraid that their customers would figure out what they were doing. So, look, the DeVosses and the and the and the Bradleys and the Scapes and all and the and the Mercers, they all have companies. They all have businesses. Now, look, some of them may be just you know, maybe wealthy enough to say fuck you, but no one's ever really brought a consistent pressure campaign against them over time. And this is something that I spoke to you off air about. I think it's about high time. The Democrats as an organization, as a group. They just don't do it. So somebody else is going to have to do it. It reminds, it reminds me very much at the beginning when I created the National Diversity Coalition for Trump, when I would watch on television his multiple rallies, which basically had no one of color in the audience. Right. I, I used to come in the next day and say, you know, in all fairness, your rallies look like a Klan meeting. So I went out and I created this diversity coalition. Wish I didn't do it. I did. It is what it is. At this point in time, I think it's about time that between the Lincoln Project, we the Midas, the Midas Touch, you know, the Micellus Boys, Mea Culpa, and sure. a handful of other people, I think it's about time that we start to put on some of these events. Well, I don't know if it'll be in L.A., in New York, in Washington. And what we'll do is we'll do very much sure. w- what the Republicans do with CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee. What we should do like a DPAC a Democrat, uh, or do a democracy political action committee. Yeah, I mean, right. It, I mean, I think I think that the, the, the forces of the pro-democracy forces in this country, and we say this at Lincoln all the time, we'll work with anybody of good faith, right? We're going to work with anybody who also wants to pull the boat in the right direction of freedom and, and of, of avoiding this country slipping into authoritarian craziness. So we ought to do that. We ought to have people in a room together. You know, it's like, hey, welcome to my fucking TED Talk, people. And it helps it actually helps build a movement. CPAC, well before Trump, is one of the things that built this cohesive, tight, disciplined conservative movement over 40 years. I mean, shit, I started going to CPAC when I was in college in the 80s. You know, it, that's how old I am. Um, and, and so that idea that you, that you would put on something like that, I think it's great. We ought to talk about it. I, love I mean, it. I think, I think and, we, and what it, we it, need it, to it, do is we need to do what the Republicans do. We, we're going to set up an account. We'll turn around. We'll start to fundraise. We'll end up bringing people in. We'll have the best speakers. Not like, you know, I was watching television the other day, and um, 
you know, Stephanie Grisham came on and she started talking about how she and 15 other insiders are going to go ahead and they're going to, you know, do some sort of an event. To me, it makes no sense. I'm not interested in listening to somebody who decided to come clean after they put out a book, right, uh, instead of doing it beforehand. There's a lot there's a lot of that going around in D.C. And, and look, God bless. But, you know. People who have not been on the front line of politics, um, you know, who basically got into some bureaucratic position where they were they were around Trump and then they wrote a book about it. And OK, great. L- love it. I'm glad you came clean. But, you know, I'm not willing to go out every day and fight to save a Republican Party that looks like Donald Trump's Republican Party. I am willing to go out and fight every day to save the country and save our democracy and get in the fight every every day with whatever it takes to to very clearly you know, break off this pattern that's building up on the on the Trump side of the equation of, of retaking the government. And so, yeah, I think a lot of the people that that are in the D.C. bubble don't understand there's no going back to the old GOP. It's over. It's over. It's not going to happen. There's, as my friend Stuart Stevens says, you know, OK, let's say you put a thousand percent more Republic, good, good Republicans yeah. in the House. That means you'd have 22 votes. Yeah, it means nothing. But uh, let me ask you this, Rick. Nothing. You recently had author Stephen Marsh uh, on your show, The Breakdown. And yeah, yeah. Uh, he was discussing the not-so-insane possibility that the United States was headed for a civil war, giving it a 67% chance of occurring. Now, I'm curious, because yeah. I saw the same statistic being talked about on CNN the other day. If you could break mm-hmm. down for my listeners his reasoning and what you think will actually happen. Yeah, look, I think what he's what he's arguing is we are now at a point where both sides have in large measure given up on a democratic solution to the current crisis. Now, the Democrats have given up on the democratic solution because they're afraid. They don't know what to do. They're helpless. They can't they can't believe that people would burn it all down. The Republicans have given up on it because they think it's the easiest way to get power back. That is a recipe for a civil conflict, a recipe for a civil war. We have been in, in my opinion, a cold civil war for a long time, where the cultures of the left and the right have drifted so far apart that it's it's impossible to recognize them anymore. Um, and the idea that you've got one side of the political equation that is now willing to embrace violence, willing to embrace lawlessness, willing to embrace the destruction of the, of the country as we knew it, um, I think that is an incredibly dangerous situation. Uh, I think it is a situation that 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 makes it very likely we'll get up into a conflict because none of these people will be punished at the degree they should be um, for, for what they did on January 6th. I think it, the, the inaction uh, on that is it makes it almost inevitable we're going to get into a conflict that we will never truly get over. Yeah, I mean, I look back not more than 24 hours ago. David Rhodes, as he stood before, um, you know, the court, they played back a statement that he made about having to having to adhere to violence in and to create a civil war if necessary to get their point across. There's no such thing anymore as look, Rick, you and I, despite the fact that it appears. To at least to the listeners, based on the questions that I'm asking, that we agree on everything. But that's not true. 
Absolutely, we don't. There are things that I may agree that I may think that you disagree with. There are things you may agree that I disagree. But that, but I am civil. This is a civil conversation, not just because we both believe that our democracy is in peril, but simply because I respect your opinion to the same extent that you respect mine. And likewise, right? That no longer exists in Washington. We are now at a point where Republicans. No matter what they say, Democrats will not it will not go along with it. The same holds true. Whatever the Democrats say, Republicans will fight tooth and nail. They even fought, for God's sakes, when Joe Biden was trying to do the COVID um, what relief package. People were fucking starving, right. and yet Republicans said, "Well, you know, Mitch McConnell, well, you know, we can't actually afford this anymore." Right? And, and so, there's people on lunch there. Like gobble, gobble, gobble. You ever see a thing on the bottom of his fucking neck like a turkey? I mean, fucking good thing disgusting. that they maybe someone should pardon him during Thanksgiving. But my point is, you, you <laughs> got, you got, you, you know, they're going to fight Joe Biden on everything, even though many of the people who would benefit from the relief package are Republicans. Sure. So no do question. they really care about their own no constituents? And the answer is a blazing fucking nope. no. Just a blazing no. It's, you know what? It, it is, it, it's, a, it's a hell of a time we live in right now, Michael. And it is a time where where all the old things we used to believe about the two parties, you know, you got to you got to reset every day and just go, nope, that's not how it works anymore. You got to realize that the world that we actually live in. You know, I said this a lot. The failure of imagination by Republicans is what led us to Trump. And and we cannot fail to imagine just how bad this can be if we don't all step up to the to the to the to the battle line and fight together. Yeah, I agree with you on that. But you know, you may remember I said to you at the beginning that the hour, you know, goes by really quick. Um, I have it yeah, did, well, man. I have, Here two, we are. I have two last <laughs> questions for you. And I want to change okay, gears for a moment and talk about one of the things that I love to attack on my Twitter account, that I like to attack on my Instagram account and on this show. And that's pedophile Matt Gates, right? His ex-girlfriend, <laughs> he's such a fucking scumbag, right? His ex-girlfriend recently testified before the grand jury investigating him, and it's likely that he could be indicted imminently. Do you think he resigns if indicted, or is he so shameless? Is he such a fucking wannabe Trump 2.0 that he will continue he will, he'll continue his barnstorming with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And do you think that the MAGA diehards drop him? Or are they also so brainwashed that they'll chalk his arrest up to some sort of a deep state plot by the Democrats? That is, that is, that, first off, let me break that one down. He will never resign under any circumstances. He will stay there until they drag him out by the feet because he believes he can balls it through. He can, he can gut it through. The second thing is the Magas will stay with him as long as he keeps doing what he's doing, which is putting on a big show. Now, the irony is they see a pedophile under every rug. They think everyone who disagrees with them is a communist pedophile. Matt Gates, Matt Gates, who is, you know, paying paying teenage hookers on Venmo is, is somehow gets a pass. It's kind of amazing. But he's an example of the new the new Republican Party. It's all about the it's all about the stupid the stupidity and the big show and all the craziness. Yeah, well, you know, and then just my last topic that I want is the second most ridiculous thing. I don't know if you saw this one. You know, Michael Avenatti, the disgraced jerk off, 
right, has now filed an action, not too dissimilar to the one that I filed against the U.S. government, Trump, Bill Barr, and so on for the unconstitutional remand of me back to prison. The only difference is his complaint, and I just think he is a pathetic motherfucker, right? His is the fact that he claims that he suffered mistreatment while in federal custody, including the fact that allegedly the only thing that these um, correctional officers would give to him to read while he was there for the 94 days was the art of the deal. Now, I'm not sure whether he thinks that they should put him up at the Ritz-Carlton, you know, because, of course, he's so used to using other people's money and lying like a fucking rug. He's part of he's part of the opposite side problem. You see, we have Matt Gates as a problem, but we have people like Michael Avenatti who are problems too. He attacked me for yeah. everything. But yet, if you look back now and you do a like we used to do in like third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, write out all the things that the guy made claims on, and then put a true and a false right. box next to it, you will find nine out of ten things that he said were absolutely false especially when it came to me. As I spoke about with Stormy uh, on this program, I never went sure. after Stormy. I didn't know she was in Nevada. I wasn't even working for Trump at the time, right? So yeah, then of right. course, you remember the very famous picture of the disc inside of an open safe, right? This has all the information. Really, motherfucker? Where's that information, you scumbag? Then paying off Jonathan <laughs> Fry, the San Francisco IRS agent, and in order to hack you know, the, the uh, IRS system, the Finson system, which is the most coveted and guarded because right. that's how you catch money launderers, drug dealers, and these terrorists. Oh, yeah. They go in, they take not only my information, my banking information, which the government could have had on their own, which they already did, all for what, $130,000 check, right? This is, this is the big thing. And Jonathan Fry ends up with probation, after going onto the system, they give it to Ronan Farrow, who goes ahead, and then he ends up writing a story about it. I mean, this guy is such fucking bad news. He goes ahead, he steals money from every single person, including a paraplegic inmate, right, that he lied to, steals Stormy Daniels' money, and now all of a sudden he's suing for $94 million. $94 million, one day, one you know, million he, for each day that he was there. You know, he, he, is, he is one of those people. And, and look, I met the guy one time. We met in, at, a, at the Texas Tribune Festival one year, had a drink. He was very charming. You know, he was, a, but, but it's like, uh, like a lot of people um, who are sociopathic, it was clear that the show he put on was not the real show. And what he was really doing was a big, was a long grift. And, you know, I, I said at one point, he was out there clanking around with big balls, bashing on Trump. And I was like, and, and I, and I, and he did. He had he had he had he had the swagger on Trump in the beginning, but man, the degree to which his bullshit fell apart is spectacular. Okay, and and look, uh, the abusive nature of con artists and and of scammers is something I've seen firsthand in my life. Um, and 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 you got to be alert to it, and you got to be mindful of it. And you got to be ready to disconnect from people like that when they when they show you who they really you are. You see the difference, though, between and you know, that, yeah, the, the, Rick, the difference between his complaint, which I believe will fail, uh, versus mine is his. You know, states that it's retaliation for his criticism of Trump by Trump and by Bill Barr. See the difference, though, 
Yeah, I yeah, don't neither buy do I. Point. But the difference is, his is based upon what? Once again, his outlandish speculation and his bluster because he desperately needs attention. He's an attention whore, right? Mine is, is predicated on Judge Alvin K. Hellerstein's decision. It's based upon a document that was given to me and foolishly. Right, you're arguing, you're arguing the law. He's arguing the that's story. Right. Perfect way to say it. You see, what oh. happened is I was shocked that they let my lawyer leave when we were there over down at 500 Pearl Street with the document, because that document was crafted specifically for me. And you can't do that. And the very first paragraph. Right. You can't. Right. You can't attain to people in that way. Right. So. And the very first paragraph. Oh, boy. Is that I'm not allowed to speak to press. I'm not allowed to speak to media. My friends, right. my family aren't allowed to. I can't do a movie. I can't do any television appearances. I can't publish a book. They knew exactly what they were doing. And when we asked. All we did is ask if we could tamp this down because the book was already with the publisher, with Skyhorse. So if I sign this, I'm going to be in violation right the second that I sign it. And they said, well, do me a favor, wait out in the hallway, and we're we're going to go call our superiors. When, in fact, they were calling the marshal, who already had the papers, comes upstairs, handcuffed, and shackles me and puts me through a second torture with more more solitary confinement, more freezer bullshit, so, the whole nine yards. So you're right. I'm arguing law, and he's arguing another fake story. But, Rick, let me thank you as always. We have a lot of stuff to do. Absolutely, we- my friend. Delighted to be with you as always. We will uh, – let, let's let's keep talking about this democracy summit. I really like the yeah, idea. I'm going to speak to you about and, it, uh, and together. Yep, together. together what we'll do is we're going to promote the it. living shit out of it, and hopefully all of our various millions of listeners that are out there you know, will come join us, and we will have an event like never seen before. I love it. All right. Thanks, Be guys. well, Rick. And now for today's mea culpa. In speaking with Rick Wilson, I am more convinced than ever that we are spiraling down the drain of democratic dissolution. First, what we learned in the Stuart Rhodes indictment shows just how close we came to an absolute bloodbath at the Capitol. This was a coordinated attack with the Oath Keepers serving as a MAGA-suited paramilitary force aimed at overturning the election. These weren't just a handful of angry weekend warriors and fat guys in camouflage. They bought tens of thousands of dollars worth of weaponry. They trained for the attack. They coordinated and planned their assault. It was only by the courage of the assembled Capitol Police that they were repelled. Otherwise, they would have invaded the Senate chamber and sought their vengeance. All of this is spelled out in the indictment. There is no disputing what happened, and it serves as a giant fuck you to those Republicans who continue to gaslight the American people into thinking that nothing happened, or that it was just a couple of broken windows and not a really big deal. This indictment calls bullshit on that false notion, but it also fails to address the giant fucking elephant in the room. The Oath Keepers did not just show up that day on their own volition. They were given orders. They were on a fucking mission to overturn the election. We need to know who it was that asked them to be there in the first place. If we can charge Stuart Rhodes with sedition, we can do the same for Trump's inner circle and eventually Trump himself. Until that time, we're just pretending to hand down justice and the spiral will continue. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. 
Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. <laughs>